Paul the Apostle wrote to the Corinthians, But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus. So what did Paul mean by sanctified? What is sanctification, and how do you know if you've received it? Well, stay with us to find out. listening to the question and answer program with our Bible teacher, Dr. J. Vernon McGee. This broadcast is a ministry of the Through the Bible Radio Network. Our first question comes to us from a listener in Grants Pass, Oregon, who writes, I would like your opinion on the growing godlessness in America, that is, drugs, alcohol, immorality, pornography, child abuse, abortion, etc. There seems to be no mention of the real evil, the human heart, nor is there much said about the need of a Savior or America getting back to the Word of God. What do you think? Well, let me say that I thoroughly, of course, agree with everything that you say there. In fact, I've been trying to say some of these things, but apparently not being heard very well. The great problem with the country today is sin. And the problem is that there's no recognition of sin, and especially that it's against Almighty God. Sin is just not something you do that's bad for the community. Sin is against God. And that's the reason, as we've just said, the the law was given. God gave the law to let man know what was right and what was wrong. Now today, man has departed totally from that. And as a result, man is doing the thing, a popular song has it, doing what comes naturally. And when man does what's come naturally, you have all of these things that you mentioned, drugs and alcohol and immorality and pornography and all of that. These are the things that man does naturally. And therefore, there needs to be discipline. There needs to be laws given. And there also needs to be a moral standard. Today, there is no moral standard whatsoever. I've been rather amazed the way that the TV stations have picked up this lottery that we've instituted in California, and they are promoting it as if it's one of the finest things that has ever come along. May I say to you that already that they are discovering that many working people who can't afford it are gambling away, actually, their paycheck that they need to buy food for their families, and that actually that there's some that are using food stamps today that the government furnishes, trading them in in certain markets that will trade them in, and they buy lottery tickets. May I say to you, this is a form of gambling that is wrong. It can ruin a nation. It can ruin a people. And it is something today that the church has totally ignored it. I've been amazed that there's never, as far as I know, I have not heard of a sermon anywhere in California of any preacher that has protested this thing and says it's wrong. And, of course, it's being done, they say, to pay for our schools. Our schools are in pretty bad shape in California 
and they've been that way a long time. And of course, this kind of money, I don't think is going to help them one bit. They certainly are not going to improve education and they can teach the kids to gamble. That will be a good thing, I guess, according to this new morality that we have. May I say to you, friends, we today as a nation are on the skids. There was a time when, for instance, England had a moral standard. They were a world ruler, and they had a tremendous influence upon the world. Now, England lost that, and we took over but we weren't prepared for it. Instead, we've had a moral breakdown, and we're no leader or pattern for the nations of the world. fact of the matter is, many nations do not have any confidence in us. They do not trust us at all, and rightly so, because we have become a nation that has discarded morality, and a nation that does that is on the way out. The scripture says, righteousness exalteth a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. And today, certainly, we're not popular in this world, and rightly so, we're not popular, because we haven't very much to offer the world right now. Oh, that the church today would arise and begin to speak out, and then to become concerned about these third world countries and the rest of the world and to get the word of God out to them. We need to do that today. The only thing that probably that can save America at this time would be a worldwide revival. And that, my friend, just doesn't seem to be in the offing right now, but it could come. A revival could save America And I think probably we're at the place where it's the only thing that's going to save us. A balanced budget is not going to save us. Changing from one party to another will not save us. Unfortunately, a leader today that wants to do the right thing is not followed, will not be followed, because we still want a free lunch, something for nothing. We want the show to go on. We want the fun to continue, and the cocaine keeps moving in. May I say to you, friends, as long as that condition prevails, we cannot survive. But maybe there is a revival down the way. Maybe God will be gracious unto us. Our next question comes to us from a listener in New Orleans, Louisiana, who said, Is it possible for someone to deny or not know about the deity of Christ and still be a Christian? Well, let me say that there is a difference between denying and not knowing about the deity of Christ when you're saved. When you are saved or come to the Lord Jesus Christ, you may not know about his deity. It's quite possible. I was not brought up in a Christian home. It was a non-Christian home. And when I started out as a young fellow and saved when I was 17, I did not know about the deity of Christ at first. I needed a Savior, and I didn't recognize all that was implicated in that. And so I did not know about the deity of Christ. But when I heard about it and was taught about it, I did not deny it. If I had, I would not have been a Christian. 
because to deny the deity of Christ is actually the same as denying the ability of the Lord Jesus to save you. Let me turn to a scripture or two. In 1 John 4, Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God, and every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already is in the world. And there are those today that actually who deny the deity of Christ and say they're Christian. What they're doing is worshiping an Antichrist. They're not worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. The same listener has a second question, which reads, Can one not have a personal relationship with Jesus and still be saved? The very reason that we are saved, and one of the wonderful benefits, is that we might have fellowship with him. Again, John in his first epistle says, That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Now, I think that it's possible to grieve the Holy Spirit in such a way that you would not have fellowship, but you'd be living with a grieved Holy Spirit. And when you would come and confess your sin, then you'd be brought back into the place of fellowship with him so that there is a possibility And I think it can only be for a period of time that a person could be out of fellowship with the Father. We get many letters from people who are Christians, but they've been out of fellowship. They've been actually in the sin and been out of fellowship. You can't have fellowship with him and be in sin. That is something the Scripture makes quite evident. And therefore, the normal experience for a child of God is to have fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And I would feel myself that if I lost that fellowship, I'd want to restore it as soon as possible. I think that this is a very sensitive area in our Christian lives and that a great many Christians today are living with a grieved Holy Spirit. And because of that, they're not having fellowship with God or with the Lord Jesus Christ. But the way out of that dilemma is to make a confession of your sin. And if we confess our sin, he's faithful and just forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Then we are restored to fellowship. But if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie, John says, and we do not have the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, then we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ just keeps on cleansing us from all sin. So you see that the condition for fellowship is the confession of sin. 
Turning now to our next question, this person in Tampa, Florida writes, Can you tell me how old Isaac was when Abraham offered him as a sacrifice? Well, we actually are not given that in Scripture at all, the exact age. But we can come to some conclusion if you go back to the 22nd chapter of the book of Genesis, that's where Abraham offered Isaac upon the altar. And then the very next chapter, chapter 23, and this obviously is a continuous story that we're being told here, and Sarah was 107 and 20 years old. These were the years of the life of Sarah, and Sarah died. So she died when she was 127, and that was right after Isaac was offered upon the altar. Well, she was 90 years old when Isaac was born. Now, she lived to be 127. Now, add 10 to that. It was 37 years after Isaac was born. Now, I think Isaac was in his 30s. The term lad there, of course, is thrown us all off the track because we think of a lad as being some little fellow around 10 years old, or even younger. But evidently, Isaac was a young man. And I personally think that he was probably around 33 years old, the same age that the Lord Jesus was when he died on the cross for our sins. I don't know that, but I do know that he was a young man because it was shortly after this episode that Sarah died and she was 127 and she was 90 when he was born. So years elapsed there and Isaac was not just a little boy. I think we can be sure of that. A listener in Syracuse, New York, sent us a letter saying, could you explain what you think about sanctification? Well, let me say this to you, that if you have been listening to our Through the Bible program, we were in the book of Leviticus, and one of the things that we were talking about was the sanctification of the priests for their holy office that they had. And we were given their glimpse of just what sanctification really is. Now, let me put it like this to you. Sanctification is in three different parts. There is what is known as positional sanctification. When you and I trust the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, at that time, the righteousness of Christ has been made over to us. The Lord Jesus has been made unto us righteousness and redemption and so many wonderful things. But righteousness is one of the things that's been made over to us so that you and I have a standing before God that is perfect because we are in Christ and that is our position. It's positional sanctification. You know, God can't take anyone to heaven but perfect people. (laughs) And if he's got it on that basis, then I'll be honest with you, I won't make it. But in this matter of positional sanctification, when the Lord Jesus Christ took away my sin, paid the penalty for my sins, he not only subtracted sin, but he gave an addition of righteousness. 
He's been made unto us righteousness. And that is the teaching of the scripture. So that is positional righteousness. Then there is an experimental or practical righteousness. That's when we grow in grace and in the knowledge of the Lord down here. And then there is that which is ultimate righteousness. Beloved, it doth not yet appear what we shall be, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him. He is righteous. That's the ultimate goal for us. But none of us in this life attain to that. Paul could say and did in Philippians, he said, he said, I'm not perfect, and I have not yet attained that which he had been called. He never became a perfect man down here on this earth, and you and I never will become perfect down here. But there is a practical righteousness that you and I can grow in grace and the knowledge of Christ, and actually... We ought to be a better Christian today than we were yesterday. In other words, there should be a spiritual growth in the life of all of us. And that growth is the thing we're concerned with today. That is the thing that we lock horns with. We come to grips with, and that is to live a life that is worthy of God. And we cannot do that in our own strength. The thing that we need today is not the gifts of the Spirit. I'm a little weary of hearing about the gifts of the Spirit. What we really need today is the fruit of the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering. How do you attain that then? How do you come by it? Well, we're told to walk in the Spirit. And to walk in the Spirit means to learn to walk in the Spirit. It's a learning process. And I think that there is definitely a time of growth in a Christian's life. That's the reason that he keeps us down here, is that we might grow. And actually, the business of the church is to produce fruit, spiritual fruit, and not religious nuts, but fruit. And that is the righteousness that you and I need today, and that is the way that you and I can grow and become sanctified. That's sanctification, that you and I grow in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think one of the things that's so important today is to recognize what is our business as a Christian when you get right down to the nuts and the bolts. What is our business as a Christian? Well, it's to do what Jesus wants us to do. And when you and I are doing that, then we are being sanctified, regardless of what that might be. And for each one of us, I'm sure it would be different. We come now to a question from a listener in Pennsylvania who says, I heard you mention that the commandment of love was not in the Old Testament law. How do you reconcile that statement with Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 through 40, where Jesus quoted the two greatest commandments from the law, that is, you shall love the Lord your God with all your mind, that is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. These quotes came from Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 9.18, respectively. 
May I say to you that I made a very unusual statement, and you misunderstood the statement. I have one reputation, and that is that I'm a simple Bible teacher. That's what one seminary out here in California likes to think of me as being a very simple person. And I like that because I'm delighted that people understand what I'm saying, and and they don't need to misunderstand. But quite frequently, I find that people misunderstand. Well, I made a statement, something like this, that God was a long time in telling anybody that he loved them, that actually you have to get to the book of Leviticus before God tells anybody that he loves them. There's a great deal of love of Abraham for Sarah and for Jacob for Rachel, but there's nothing in Genesis about God's love for the human family. But when God gave the law, God put in there this matter of love and the fact that he loved his people. But he was a long time getting to it. Now, that's the thing that I said. I didn't say that there wasn't any love mentioned in the law. I said God was a long time. You go through Genesis and Exodus, and you have to get to Leviticus before God tells anybody that he loves them. And I think, by the way, that is unusual, very unusual. God never told Adam and Eve that he loved them. That is according to the record. Now, I'm sure that since he communicated with them so closely, I'm sure that he did. But I'm talking about according to the record that we have today. Our final question comes to us from a listener in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, who writes, In Revelation chapter 6, verses 7 and 8, the rider on the pale horse is given power over one-fourth of the earth to kill with the sword, hunger, and beasts of the field. Since Africa covers one-fourth of the earth, could this refer to Africa? Well, no, I think you could not think of this as being Africa. It means the whole earth, for that matter, because Africa is not the only place that has wild beasts. We think of it. India is the place of wild beasts also, as well as other parts of Asia. North America here had wild beasts. Today, you're not permitted to kill them. And South America has many killer beasts also. So it refers to those. And I think that you missed the point. At one time, when there were few people on the earth, animals were a real danger. When I was a boy and we moved to West Texas, wolves were a real danger. I remember my dad telling about riding with another man and a pack of wolves started following them. And if the horse had stumbled or something had happened like that, why, the wolves would attack. But they were waiting, of course, for something to happen. This man that was riding along, they were riding horseback, he said to my dad, he said, I'm going to take a chance. I'm going to kill one of the wolves and see if they won't, when they see the blood of the wolf, they'll turn and eat him. So he stopped and pointed his rifle at one of the wolves and killed him. And the wolf fell and the blood came out and all the wolves made the attack upon the wolf that had been shot. 
and they were able to ride off in safety. Now, that was in actually in my lifetime that animals were a real danger. They're not today. They tell me that up in these mountains around us here that there are still wild cats and actually mountain lions around, but very few are left today. Evidently, there is going to be, when population is decimated, not only will the jungle creep up, but also the animals of the jungle will become a menace and a danger again. And I think that's the message that is in that and not the way that you have interpreted it. We hope that one of your questions was answered today. If not, we'd like to let you know that we have a number of excellent materials by Dr. McGee that can help you in your understanding of God's Word. To receive the resource catalog, just call us anytime and leave your voicemail request with your name, address, and the call letters of this station. The number to call is 1-800-65-BIBLE. If you have access to the internet, you can find a great deal of Dr. McGee's resources available in our online bookstore, and a lot of that stuff is free. Be sure to join us on the Through the Bible radio program heard on this station. We'll be continuing Dr. McGee's five-year journey through the whole Word of God, book by book and chapter by chapter. We'll gladly add you to our mailing list when you express your interest in receiving our monthly newsletter and the notes and outlines when you call or write. Did you miss a portion of today's broadcast? You can listen to it again as well as the last several years of our question and answers program by going to our website. Contact our offices for our catalog or to get on the mailing list or to express your interest in this ministry. All you need to do is call that number, 1-800-65-BIBLE. If you want to get to an operator, call Monday through Thursday from 6 a.m. to 3 p.m. Pacific time. And you can always write to questions and answers in the U.S., Box 7100, Pasadena, California, 91109. In Canada, Box 25325, London, Ontario, N6C, 6B1. Or visit us online at www.ttb.org. Now we pray that God will answer all your questions and solve all your problems. This program's been brought to you by the faithful friends and supporters of the worldwide ministry of Through the Bible Radio Network.